The Lord be with you. Well, that was pretty pitiful, I must say. I'm expecting a response to that. So the Lord be with you. Thank you. Let us pray. O gracious God and most merciful Father, who has vouchsafed us the rich and precious jewel of thy holy word, assist us with thy spirit that it may be written in our hearts to our everlasting comfort, to reform us, to renew us according to thine own image, to build us up into the perfect building of thy Christ, and to increase us in all heavenly virtues. Grant this, O heavenly Father, for the same Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. Well, welcome back. It has been some time since we undertook our continuing study of Paul's epistle to the Romans. A long break at Christmas, but we are back here in this new year. And of course, we had a break through most of January as a consequence of the Mere Anglicanism Conference. But all of those things are now behind us and we can resume our study. So if you don't remember where we left off or where we pick up, we are beginning Romans chapter 11 today. So if you have your Bibles, you'll want to turn to Romans chapter 11. And we're going to go ahead and read through the first 10 verses of this chapter and then begin our study. Paul writes, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. I want you to keep your finger there in Romans chapter 11, but we're actually going to begin our study today by looking at something that Paul says in one of his other letters, and that is in his epistle to the Ephesians. So if you want to, just put a bookmark there in Romans chapter 11 and turn to the letter to the Ephesians, just a few pages to your right in the Bible, and you'll come to Ephesians chapter 3. Now, Romans is, in many ways, the weightiest of Paul's letters. Um, many people love Romans, but many people find Romans challenging. And part of that is because Romans, unlike the Gospels or Romans, unlike the book of Acts, is not really a book of stories. Um, we like that sort of thing. We like narrative. We like biography and that sort of thing. And what Paul is presenting to us here in Romans is more of a theological treatise than it is an account of historical events. It is a logical argument that Paul is making from Romans chapter 1 the whole way through to the end. And of course, one argument builds upon another. And that can be challenging for people who don't prefer to think logically, for example. We live in a very emotive age. People prefer to emote or to feel rather than to think. And so Paul's great letter to the Romans can sometimes be challenging to them. But it is important. And of course, it's a long letter that makes things even more challenging, even though it's important. And that's one of the reasons why I love Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. Ephesians is not a long letter, but in that letter to the Ephesians, Paul deals with all of the great doctrines that he deals with here in Romans, or at least almost all of them, but he deals with them in a more succinct manner. Now, that doesn't mean, oh, well, then just read the, uh, the abridged version in Ephesians. That doesn't mean read the cliff notes in Ephesians and don't pay any attention to Romans. No, Paul fleshes it out in Romans. He gives us a greater, deeper understanding, but it can sometimes be helpful to take a look at how he deals with some of these issues in other works. 
And that's what I want to do with Ephesians. So turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Paul's not dealing with exactly the same subject, but there is something here that I think is analogous to what he wants to say in Romans chapter 11. Now here in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul talks about his ministry among the Gentiles. He's talking about the place of the church in history and the work of the Christian believers in history. And here's what he says in Ephesians chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. He says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery has been made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. He goes on. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that was realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is glory. There is a word, and we're going to come back to it in just a moment, that Paul uses continually in those verses from Ephesians chapter 3. And that word is what? It is the word mystery. Paul uses it over and over again. Verse 3, mystery. The mystery was made known to me by revelation. Verse 4, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Verse 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Skip down to verse 9. And to bring light to everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. It's a mystery. Mystery. I'm going to come back to that word in just a minute. But a little historical context first. When Paul wrote this epistle to the Ephesians, he said that he was a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of the Gentiles. And that was literally the case. At the time that Paul wrote his epistle to the Ephesians, it was around the year 60 AD, uh, he was, in fact, in prison. He was imprisoned in Rome. And he was imprisoned in Rome precisely because he had been bearing witness to the Gentiles. He had been taking the gospel to the Gentile people. Now, here's the historical background. Paul had been ministering for some time among the Gentiles. We oftentimes think of Peter as the apostle to the Jews, Paul as the apostle to the Gentiles. You can't push that too far because Paul ministered among the Jews and Peter ministered among the Gentiles, but generally that is the case. Paul spent the greater amount of his time ministering in a Greco-Roman culture among the Gentiles. But he had always been concerned for his own people. He makes that very clear in the writings to the Romans. He's very clear that he is concerned about the Jews and their own eternal state and their own future. And so all throughout his ministry among the Gentiles, Paul had been thinking that it was sad that the church seemed to be divided. There were Jewish believers and there were Gentile believers, and oftentimes they didn't get along with each other. But he knew that in Christ the dividing walls of hostility had come down. In Christ, there was no more Jew nor Greek. There was no more slave nor free. There was no more male nor female. We were all one in Christ. You know, it's interesting. This is one of the reasons why when we do a funeral, that even if a person is a veteran and they have the American flag draping the casket, 
One of the things we do here, part of our custom, is that we take that flag off when they come into the church and we drape the casket with a white pall. And do you know why? Because that means that everybody is exactly the same in the eyes of God. And we're covered in the righteousness of Christ. Whether you're a four-star general or you're a buck private, whether you're a wealthy individual or a poor individual, whether you're distinguished or undistinguished, it makes no difference in the eyes of God. We are all equal. And that's exactly what Paul was trying to explain to people, is that in Christ there was no distinction between anybody. And he had been preaching this among the Gentiles, but he realized that the church was divided. And he wanted to break down those dividing walls of hostility. And so Paul had been collecting what was known as the Jerusalem Fund. He had been going throughout the Gentile churches and the Gentile world, and he had been collecting money, which he intended to take to Jerusalem and give to the church in Jerusalem. Now, the church in Jerusalem was a, a beleaguered church. It was a persecuted church because it was a church that was made up of people who were Jews but were now following Jesus Christ. And they were being persecuted not only by the Romans... But they were being persecuted primarily by the Jews who said, look, you're not a part of us anymore. This is a heresy. You'll recall that that's one of the reasons why Paul, prior to his conversion, had been going to Damascus to stamp out Christianity because he regarded it as a heresy. And incidentally, today is the feast of St. Paul's conversion. So Paul knew that the church in Jerusalem, those who were followers of Jesus, were being persecuted they were poor people, they had great needs, and so what he was trying to do was go throughout the Gentile world, collect this money, and he was going to take it to Jerusalem and present it to the church there and say, here, these funds are for you. It's from your brothers and your sisters in Christ. And they were going to say, brothers and sisters in Christ, what brothers and sisters are you talking about? And he would say, oh, your brothers and sisters in Rome. Your brothers and sisters in Ephesus, your brothers and sisters in Philippi, and they would say, we don't have any brothers or sisters in this place. And Paul would say, oh, but you do. Your Gentile brothers and sisters in Christ, they are concerned for you. They don't regard you as outcasts, and you shouldn't regard them as outcasts. It was an attempt, you see, to unite the church. Now, you've all heard the expression, no good deed goes unpunished. And that was certainly the case with Paul. When he went up to Jerusalem, and this is recorded in the latter chapter of Acts, when he went up there to Jerusalem to present this Jerusalem fund, he got there and he got himself into a difficult situation. The leaders in the church in Jerusalem came to him and said, now, Paul, here's the situation. You become somewhat of a lightning rod because of your ministry among the Gentiles. You're telling the Gentiles that the only thing they need to do is to believe in Christ. They don't have to be circumcised. They don't have to keep the kosher laws and so forth. And that's created a problem for the church here in Jerusalem. And that's one of the reasons why we're in trouble is because people are saying, you're sending out people who are undermining Jewish traditions. And so they said, here, Paul, this is what we want you to do. And if you've listened to my study on the book of Acts, I think this is one of the low points, quite frankly, in Paul's life. I think Paul almost gets compromised here. Paul says, well, what do you want me to do? And they say, here's what we want you to do. We want you to go up to the temple and make a sacrifice and take some of these young men with you that you brought along, and then everybody will know that you're loyal to Judaism, that you're not trying to undermine the faith. Now, that would have been a very dangerous thing for Paul to do. Because he had already made it clear the sacrificial system was null and void in the light of Christ's arrival. No one needed to make a sacrifice for sins anymore because Jesus had been the full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. Have you heard that language before? That's what Paul was saying. And so Paul is sort of like, oh, I don't know. But finally he relents and he says, okay, he will do it. And he makes his way up to the temple, and we're told that a riot broke out. A riot broke out, and Paul was falsely accused of taking Gentiles into the temple precincts. It was illegal for Gentiles to go into the temple. In fact, um, if you know anything about the temple in first century Judaism in Jerusalem in those days, it was it sat up on the top of a hill. Still, the temple mount is there. It's what we call the temple mount. The, the temple was on the top, but it was surrounded by a series of circular courts 
The outermost court was what was known as the court of the Gentiles. That was as far as Gentiles were permitted to go. And there were signs all along the wall that said, trespassers will be not prosecuted, but executed. So Gentiles were permitted to go to the court of the Gentiles, which is where all the buying and the selling took place. Remember, Jesus drove the money changers out of the temple. That was as far as Gentiles were allowed to go. But then you passed through an opening in the wall and you went up several stairs until you reached the court of the women. And that was as far as the women were allowed to go. They could go further than the Gentiles, but they could not go any further than the court of the women. Then you passed through another gate and up several more stairs, and eventually you came to what was known as the court of Israel, and that is as far as the laymen could go. But then there was a court beyond that, and that was the court of the priests, and that's where the priests could go. And unless you were a priest, you could not pass into that area. And then, of course, even beyond that, there was an area known as the Holy of Holies, where only one person could go once a year, and that was the high priest on the Day of Atonement. So Paul, of course, was known to have been ministering among the Gentiles. He'd been collecting this fund. He'd gone to Jerusalem for the purpose of uniting the church by presenting this generous contribution from the Gentile churches to the Jews in Jerusalem, and they say, look, you've got to go up and you've got to make a sacrifice so that everybody knows that you're loyal. He's making his way to the temple, and all of a sudden a riot breaks out. People accuse Paul of taking Gentiles into the court of Israel. Now, the irony is, he wasn't. But that didn't matter. He was falsely accused. And the book of Acts says that they almost tore Paul limb from limb. And he would have been killed had it not been for the timely intervention of the Roman garrison that was quartered there in Jerusalem. The Roman soldiers came out and they rescued Paul and uh, they were about ready to take Paul back and publicly flog him for being a rabble rouser. And that's when Paul said, look, I'm a Roman citizen. And they said, oh, we didn't know you were a Roman citizen. And so Paul would eventually be taken off to Caesarea Maritima. He would be imprisoned there for a number of years, and then he would, as was the right of a Roman citizen, appeal to Rome, and he would be taken off to Rome to stand trial before the emperor. So that's the background to this, all right? This is the background to what Paul is saying here in Ephesians chapter 3. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles... It's because of my love for the Gentiles that I've been falsely accused of taking Gentiles into the temple precincts. It's not true, but that's what's happened. And here I am, I am in prison in Rome as a consequence. So that's the background here. Paul really was a prisoner because of the Gentiles. You think about the love of Paul for these people. This is a remarkable turn of events in Paul's life, if you think about it. It's great that we're talking about this on this day, which is the feast of his conversion on the road to Damascus. If you were here for the Wednesday night service, I talked a little bit about Paul's conversion last night. You think about Paul. Paul, prior to his conversion, knew about Jesus, but he hated Jesus. And he hated Jesus. He wasn't just indifferent about Jesus. There are many people out there in the world today who are sort of indifferent regarding Christ. But Paul was not indifferent regarding Christ. He hated Christ. He thought that the Christian movement, what was called the followers of the way, because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's how the early Christians were first known as the followers of the way. Paul felt that the followers of the way were a damnable deceit. They were undermining the Jewish faith. It was a heresy. And it needed to be stamped out. He was zealous. And so we're told that he was deputized by the Sanhedrin and sent off to Damascus to stamp out the Christian faith, to arrest Christians, the followers of the way, and bring them back to Jerusalem for trial and execution. He hated Christ. But now here he was in Ephesians chapter 3, a prisoner for Christ. What a remarkable change that had taken place in Paul's life as a result of encountering Jesus. He who had been the persecutor of the church now is the prisoner for the church. 
who's a prisoner for Christ Jesus. His attitude toward Christ has changed, but it wasn't just his attitude toward Christ. His attitude toward the Gentiles had changed as well. Prior to his conversion, Paul was zealous for the traditions of his ancestors. He was a Jew. He hated the Gentiles. Now, this is something we have to remember about the first century world. We have to keep in mind that that world was a deeply divided world. Nobody had anything to do with anybody. The, the Greeks looked down on the Romans as upstarts, as boorish. The Romans looked back on the Greeks as has-beens. Their greatness lay in the past. Both of them looked down on the Jews, who felt that their job was to come out from among everybody else and be separate. And the Jews looked down on everybody else because they regarded everybody else as pagan, as uncircumcised Gentile dogs. And that's how Paul regarded the Gentiles prior to his conversion. But just as his attitude toward Jesus Christ had been changed on that road to Damascus, so too his attitude toward the Gentiles had been changed. Here he was, imprisoned in Rome, falsely accused of having taken what? Gentiles into the temple precincts, even though that was not the case. So here in Ephesians, he is talking autobiographically here, and he says, I was a prisoner for Christ Jesus. I was a prisoner on your behalf. And yet he says, it's all been worth it. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. The mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations. This mystery, verse 6, is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Paul says, I'm a prisoner for Christ Jesus, I am a prisoner for the Gentiles, and I'm a prisoner because of this mystery. This mystery. Now, it's important that we understand what Paul means by that term mystery, which, as I said, he uses at least four times in these first 13 verses. When we think of that word mystery, what do we think of? Well, you probably think of something on the BBC, you know, Midsummer Murders or something like that. That's, that's a mystery. To us, a mystery is a conundrum. It's, it's a puzzle. It's something that needs to be sorted out, worked out. But that's not what the biblical term means. A mystery is not a puzzle. It's not a conundrum. It is something that is hidden and only revealed to those who are initiated. All right? Something that is hidden from everybody else but is revealed to the initiated. So a good way to describe a mystery would be like a fraternity. Fraternities, and, and this can be just, you know, college fraternities. It can also be fraternal organizations like the Masonic Order or the Elks or the Moose or the Oddfellows or whatever it is. Well, you know those organizations that are out there that you only know the secrets of the society once you become initiated. Everybody on the outside doesn't know the secret handshake. But those who are initiated learn all of those things. That's the way in which Paul uses that mystery here. Paul is saying that he is a prisoner because of the mystery of what God was doing with the Gentiles in history. It's a mystery that other people did not know, but once you were initiated into the faith, you came to understand what God was actually doing. And what was God actually doing? God was actually tearing down the dividing walls of hostility and making one people out of two, and that one people was the church. And it was through the church that God was working to fulfill his purposes in the world. It's a mystery of Christ. It's the mystery that the Gentiles are co-heirs with Israel. 
It's the mystery of the church's purpose that God is working out his plans in history through the life of the church. This is one of the reasons why we Christians measure time differently than other people. You know how the Jews measure time? From a fixed point. And that fixed point is creation. The beginning of all things. Sounds like a good thing. But did you ever notice that we Christians measure time in terms of B.C. and A.D.? Now, even in the secular world, even in academic circles, while they no longer use the terms B.C. and A.D., they use the terms B.C.E. and A.C.E. before the common era as opposed to before Christ and A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. What is interesting is they still use the same fixed point. And what is that fixed point from which they measure time forward and backward, not from the beginning in a continuous line to the right, but from the beginning left and right, forward and backward, what is that fixed point? It is Jesus Christ. It is the arrival of Christ on earth. And that's what Paul was saying. All of history finds its culmination, its purpose, its meaning in the person and work of Jesus Christ. In the fact that God has taken all the peoples of the world, Jews and Gentiles alike, and in Christ he has redeemed them, he has torn down the dividing walls of hostility, and he has made all people one in the church. And it is through the church that God is working out his saving purposes in history. That's the mystery. What an extraordinary thing. God was planning this all from the beginning. He may have started with the Jews. He may have started with the Hebrew people. But it was never his intention to stop there. His intention was to what? Save the whole world. Jesus would come through the Jewish line, through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. But he would not just be the savior of a particular people. He would be the savior of all people. Paul says that was God's plan from the beginning. But unless you become a believer, unless you become a Christian and initiated into this new life, you do not see it. You cannot understand it. And that's what he's talking about. That is the mystery. It's, when you say unsearchable, what do you mean? Well, when I, the unsearchable riches of God's grace. Right, the unsearchable riches of God's grace. In other words, those are things that you and I cannot comprehend. The unsearchable mystery would be the fact that unless you cannot discover it on your own, you have to be initiated into the life to understand that that is what God is doing. This is the way John Stott put it. He said, secular history concentrates its attention on kings, queens, presidents, politicians, and generals. In fact, on VIPs. And that's true. When you, when you turn on the news, what are we talking about? The New Hampshire primary. Well, it may be garbage, but nevertheless, we're, we're talking about what's going on in, in kings, in nations, in, 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 in what we would call secular history. The Bible, on the other hand, concentrates rather on a group it calls the saints. Often little people, insignificant people, unimportant people, who are, however, at the same time God's people, and for that reason are both unknown to the world and yet well-known to God. Secular history concentrates on wars, battles, and peace treaties. You get a book on the world history or American history or the history of the 20th century, and what's that history all about? You're not likely to find very much in there about the Christian church, are you? But you're going to find a great deal about Franklin Roosevelt, Winston Churchill, World War I, World War II, Woodrow Wilson. If you get a history of the 21st century, you're going to get a lot about Donald Trump and so forth. That's what we think of when we think of history. But that's not what God is focusing on. Secular history concentrates on wars, battles, peace treaties, followed by yet more wars, battles, and peace treaties. The Bible concentrates on the war between good and evil on the decisive victory won by Jesus Christ over the powers of darkness, on the peace treaty ratified by his blood, and on the sovereign proclamation of an amnesty for all rebels who will repent and believe. Again, secular history concentrates on the changing map of the world. That's exactly what we're dealing with with Israel and Gaza. 
as one nation defeats another and annexes its territory and on the rise and fall of empires. The Bible concentrates rather on a multinational community called the church, which has no territorial frontiers, which claims nothing less than the whole world for Christ and whose empire will never come to an end. Right. Hold on, that's what we're getting to in Romans chapter 11. But the point here is that Paul is saying there was a mystery. And the mystery, which was not made known to people in a previous generation, has now been made known in the person of Jesus Christ, that God is uniting all people in one great family, the church, and he is working out his purposes in and through that unique community. That's the mystery. So let me just sort of distill again what Paul is saying because it really does connect with what we're going to be studying here in Romans chapter 11, which is a mystery. And it connects the Jews and the Gentiles together. What is God doing through the church? He is bringing genuine peace and reconciliation to the world. That's what the church is here for. God is bringing genuine reconciliation to the world. The church is described as the body of Christ. Jesus physically is at the right hand of God the Father, interceding on our behalf. What is his body in the world today? It is the church. We have been given the job of reconciliation, the job that Christ had, which was to reconcile all men to himself. That is the job of the church, to change hearts and minds and bring them into fellowship with God. What is God doing through the church? He is displaying Christ to the world by Christian people. Paul says we are Christ's ambassadors, God making his appeal through us. What does an ambassador do? What is an ambassador supposed to be? The representative of a nation, isn't that right? When an ambassador is sent out into the world, he represents his nation. If you're an ambassador to the court of St. James, you are an ambassador from the United States to Great Britain. What is an embassy? You know, a couple of summers ago, I was in Germany, and I, I stood there next to the Brandenburg Gate. And you know, there's an American embassy right there. I was in Germany, but that was American soil. The embassy is American, and it's in Germany. Paul says that what God is doing in the church is he is displaying Christ to the world by Christian people. We are Christ's ambassadors. It's in coming to know us that people come to know him whom to know is life everlasting. What is God doing through the church? He is showing that in losing one's life, we find true joy. This seems ironic, but it is true. Jesus said, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel shall ever surely find it. That was one of the things that was so astonishing to people in the ancient world. They could not understand how Christians could go to their death confident, joyful, singing. You know, we don't think that caged birds can sing, do we? But the Christian can. What is God doing in the church? He is displaying the manifold wisdom of God to the rulers. Paul says, God takes the foolish things the despised things, the things that are not, the lowly things, to bring to naught the things that are. That's the wisdom of God. We think you have to be great in order to make a difference. And Jesus said, it's in being the servant of all that you find true greatness. It is in the church that God is rewriting the history of the fall. You've heard me say this before. God is getting the Adam project back on track. God doesn't have a plan B. He has a plan A. And that's what God is doing. He is rewriting the history of the world in and through the life of the church as we redeem that which has fallen. And finally, what is God doing in the church? God is working for the good of Israel. And that brings us to Romans chapter 11.
So turn back to Romans chapter 11. Paul says this is a mystery, just as it is a mystery that God was working through Israel, through the Jews, in order to bring salvation to the Gentiles, and that has only become clear now in the light of Christ. What he says is that God is also working through the Gentiles to bring about the salvation of the Jews, who up to this point have rejected the Messiah. And that, too, is something that has been hidden, but has now been revealed. That is a mystery that has now been revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's why, in Romans chapter 11, verse 1, Paul can say this, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they've demolished your altars, and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. That is the mystery. God was working through the Jews to bring about the salvation of the Gentiles and it is through the salvation of the Gentiles, Paul says, that the Jewish people will be provoked to jealousy and God will work in and through his people to bring them back to salvation. Now in order to understand this, and again, as I said earlier, Paul is making a logical argument. And the chapter divisions, and you've heard me say this before as well, the chapter divisions were not there in the original letter when Paul wrote it. When we have chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, that never existed when Paul, nobody writes a letter like that. When you write a letter to somebody, you don't write chapter 1. I mean, I can guarantee you, if you're at chapter 11, they've stopped reading by that point if you write a letter like that. That's not what Paul did. The chapter divisions were put in in the Middle Ages in order to help people digest the Scriptures. Made it easier for them to inwardly digest them, to memorize them. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to the end that all that believe in him should not perish but everlasting life. Made it easier for people to memorize portions of scripture. But they were not there originally. And we have to remember that because what Paul is doing is he is writing a logical argument and so one argument flows into the next seamlessly and sometimes when you read it as chapter by chapter you miss that fact. So Romans chapter 11 is actually flowing from everything that Paul has said up to this point. And this whole argument about God not rejecting his people doesn't begin here. It actually began several chapters earlier. In Romans chapter 8. You remember what Romans chapter 8 is about? That is that great chapter about eternal security. Keep your finger there in Romans 11 and go back to Romans chapter 8 for just a moment. Paul has been saying that you and I are saved not by our own works, not by our own efforts, but by grace, the grace that has been bestowed to us in Christ Jesus. And for those who are in Christ Jesus, Paul says there is good news. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How much condemnation is there for those who are in Christ Jesus? None. None. If you're in Christ Jesus, when you stand before the throne of judgment on that great day, there will be no condemnation. You have passed from death to life. And because of that, Paul says, beginning in verse 16, for I consider that the, present, the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing, excuse me, verse 18, to the glory that is revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. 
Likewise, the Spirit helps us, helps us, with, helps us in our weakness. Verse 28, for we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. You can see the flow of his argument. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is the Spirit who intercedes on our behalf. And as a result, we can be confident that all things work together for good. Why? Because those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those he predestined, he conformed to the image of his Son in order that they might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. It is the work of God from start to finish. That's why there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And the answer is no one can be against us. Verse 37, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And you get to the end of that, you just want to stand up and cheer. There's no condemnation in Christ. The Spirit intercedes on our behalf. All things will work together for the good of those who love God. Because those he called, he predestined. Those he predestined, he conformed to the image of his Son. And those he predestined, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. Hallelujah. There is nothing. If, if God is for you, who can be against you? The obvious answer is no one. That is the great pinnacle. That is the high point. That is the Everest of Paul's epistle to the Romans. But you'll recall that it prompts a question. Well, if that's true, if nothing can separate us from the love of God, then why is it that the Jews, who were God's chosen people, do not believe? How can we be absolutely certain that nothing is going to separate us from the love of God if it appears that the Jews themselves, his chosen people, the apple of his eye, have been separated from his love? And what Paul is going to do in Romans chapter 9 through 11 is he's going to begin this argument to point out that God has not forsaken his people. So the argument actually begins back in Romans chapter 8. But that's what Paul is talking about in Romans chapters 9 and following. Look at chapter 9 beginning at verse 1. I'm speaking the truth at Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unseen. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. For they are Israelites... And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. And yet he goes on to say, the very next verse, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. And that's the argument that he makes. Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 10 and ultimately in Romans chapter 11 where he reaches the fulfillment of that argument. He makes the point, and he has a number of points that he wants to make. The big point is that God has not forsaken Israel, and here is the reason why, and that's what he's making. He's making this argument, Romans chapter nine through 11. First of all, he says God's historical purpose toward Israel has not failed because salvation was always on the basis of election. It was always on the basis of election, and everybody goes, Ugh. But that has been Paul's argument, you'll recall. That those whom God foreknew, he did what? He predestined. And those he predestined, he called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. That's the only reason why we can say nothing can separate us from the love of God. It is because it has been the work of God from, stop, from start to finish, from stem to stern. So Paul's first argument as to why God has not rejected his people, in spite of what it may seem from a historical point of view, is that only the elect will be saved. He goes on to say in Romans chapters 9, 30 through 10, 21, 
the failure of the Jews to believe was not God's fault, it was their own fault because they wanted to earn their salvation. They did not want to receive salvation by grace. They wanted to earn it by obedience to the law. His third argument, and that's where we pick up today, is that actually some Jews have been saved. It's not to say that God has rejected his people because Paul says some Jews have believed. Indeed, he says, I am one of them. He said, how can you say that God has rejected his people for I myself am an Israelite? That's what he says, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. He's going to go on to say that we know that God has not rejected his people. Why? Because in the worst of times, there has always been a remnant of believers. You know, sometimes we get into a siege mentality, don't we? We think to ourselves, we're the only faithful people left. You ever felt like that? Like the world is going to hell in a handbasket and we're the only ones left? There were many in Paul's day who felt precisely the same way. And Paul is saying, that's not true. There is always a remnant. There are more than you actually think. He goes on to say, God has not rejected his people. Why? Because salvation of the Jews, or of the Gentiles rather, that should say salvation of the Gentiles, was meant to arouse jealousy among the Jews. That's the mystery. That's the mystery that was hidden. There was a mystery that was hidden before that God was working through the Jews to bring about the salvation of the Gentiles. God is also working now through the lives of the Gentiles and their salvation to provoke the Jews to jealousy so that, and here's the culmination, in the end, all Israel shall be saved. Now you think about that. That is an extraordinary thing. This is what Paul is saying. He's saying, at the beginning of history, God decided to save the world. How did he save the world? He chose, of his own free, sovereign will, a particular man. Of all the men in the world, he chose a particular man. That particular man was Abraham. And through Abraham, God would bring a particular people. And through that particular people, there would come a particular Savior, Jesus Christ. And through that particular Savior, Jesus Christ, would come a particular body, the church. And through the church, all people, Jews, Gentiles, Romans, Greeks, black, white, educated, ignorant, all people might find salvation. And that was not something that God thought up in the midst of history. That had been his plan always from the beginning. And that is why God said to Abraham, through you all the nations will be blessed. And it is through the salvation of people who are not of the Jewish faith. When they see the blessings that are in Christ, the confidence, the joy, the hope that they lack, they will be provoked to jealousy and go back and discover for themselves that it is through them that the Savior of the world has come. And Paul says in Romans chapter 11, a great revival will break out among his ancient people. And all Israel shall be saved. That is the promise that he is making here. That is the mystery that was hidden previous ages, but now has been revealed to us the mystery that God is at work in his people. Now let's go back to Romans chapter 11. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee 
to Baal. Paul says you cannot say that God has rejected his people because first of all, he says, I'm a Jew. And even if there are only a handful of us, if God only saves one Jew, it means that he's not rejected his people. And I am a Jew. Now, the way Paul puts this is interesting. He doesn't describe himself as a Jew. He describes himself as a what? An Israelite. Now, that's important. There are three words that are used in Scripture to describe God's ancient people. The first term that you sometimes heard is the word Hebrew. Now, this is something we have to keep in mind. Is being a Jew a religious or an ethnic designation? That depends upon who you ask. And this is one of the things that was being said against Paul. You know, you ask a Jew, are you a Jew? How do you become a Jew? Well, if your mother was a Jew, you are a Jew. That's how you become a Jew. But what happens if you convert to Christianity? Do you cease to be a Jew? Well, see, some people are shaking their heads no, some people are shaking their heads yes, and that's exactly how it is. If you ask some Jews, if you convert to Judaism, do you cease to be a Jew? And they would say, if you, I mean, if, if some Jews convert to Christianity and you ask a Jew, are you a Jew anymore? They will say, no, you're not. You become a Christian. You, you, you cease to be a Jew. And yet, at the same time, we have people out there in the world who don't practice the Jewish religion, like the prime minister of Israel, who is pretty most part a secular Jew. For many, it is just an ethnic designation, not a religious designation. So, which is it? Can you cease to be a Jew? That's the charge that was being made against Paul. They were saying, well, Paul, you can't say that God hasn't rejected his people because you're no longer a Jew. You've become the follower of the way, and that, that, that's, the, the, that's something that the Gentiles do. You're, you're no longer a Jew, Paul. And that's what some Jews would say. I heard the story about a man who was Jewish, and he was invited to a bar mitzvah, and Jewish men participate in a bar mitzvah, but when they discovered that he had embraced Jesus Christ as the Messiah, they said, you're no longer a Jew, you can no longer participate. And he said, what do you mean I'm no longer a Jew? My mother was a Jew, my father was a Jew, I was raised in Judaism. But they said, you had rejected your Judaism. And yet there are people out there who don't even believe anything of Judaism, but because they were raised in it ethnically, they are still regarded as Jews. That's the charge that was brought against Paul. You're not a Jew anymore. You can't say that God hasn't rejected his people because you're no longer a Jew. And this is what Paul is going to say here in Romans chapter 11. Don't tell me I'm not a Jew. I am, in fact, an Israelite. An Israelite. As I said, there are three words used in the Bible to describe the Jews. The first one is a Hebrew that's how Paul describes himself in Philippians, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Now, where does that term Hebrew come from? We talk about the Hebrew people wandering in the wilderness, the Hebrew people being captives in Egypt. Where does that come from? Actually, we don't know. We don't know where that term comes from as a designation for God's ancient people. The best guess is that it comes from the name of a man named Eber in Genesis chapter 10, so very early on. Genesis chapter 10, verses 21 and 25. Eber, Hebrew. Eber, Hebrew. We think that's where the term comes from, but we really don't know. If that is where it comes from, it's not a reference to the chosen people. It's the reference to a race. Semite. Semitic. It's something along those lines. But that is a term that is sometimes used in the Bible to describe the Jews. Now, the other term that is used is that term Jew. Where does that come from? Anybody know where that comes from without looking at the screen? It comes from the fourth son of Jacob and Leah, Judah, Judah. It's an ethnic designation. It's an ethnic designation. The third term that is used to describe God's people, aside from Hebrew and Jew, is the term Israel. 
Israel. Now, where does Israel come from? Israel is Jacob's new name. Remember the story of how Jacob wrestled with the angel? And we're told that when he wrestled with the angel and was successful and was blessed, God gave him a new name, Israel, which means I've wrestled with God. So then when Paul uses that term, Israel, as opposed to Hebrew, which he uses in other places, as opposed to Jew, which he uses liberally here in the Epistle to the Romans, when he describes himself as an Israelite, what he is saying is, I am, in fact, of the chosen people. In fact, I'm part of the covenant people. That's the word. Israel is the covenant name. There's an ethnic designation. Yes. There's a racial designation, but Paul says it's more than that. I'm part of the covenant. He said, God has not rejected his people, and he's not rejected me because I've embraced Christ. For I myself am an Israelite. I am part of the covenant community. He goes on to say, I am a descendant of Abraham. I can trace my lineage back to Abraham. Of course, for most Jews, that was the definitive thing. You know, if you want to join the DAR or the colonial dames, you have to be able to trace your lineage back. Paul says, I can trace my lineage back. Back to Abraham. How can you say I'm not a Jew? And then he goes on to say this, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. What's significant about the tribe of Benjamin? The tribe of Benjamin was the smallest of the tribes, of the 12 tribes, and yet it was one of the most significant. It was significant for a number of reasons, not the least of which is that when there was the civil war following the death of King Solomon and the kingdom was divided between the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, you remember the 10 tribes went with the northern kingdom, Israel, and 12 tribes, or two tribes, stayed with the southern kingdom. There was Judah and there were Benjamin. And when the 10 tribes went off in a liberal direction and abandoned the worship of God, the two tribes, only two, they were the minority, but they remained in the south. They were loyal to God. So when people says, well, Paul, you cannot say that God hasn't rejected his people because he hasn't rejected you. Paul, you're no longer a Jew. Paul says, that's crazy. I'm an Israelite. I'm part of the covenant community. I can trace my lineage back to Abraham. You don't get any more Jewish than that. And furthermore, I was of the tribe of Benjamin. When all the other tribes went off and were unfaithful to God, I was part of the tribe that remained faithful. We were small, but we were fearless. We remained faithful to God. And the other thing that's significant about the tribe of Benjamin was that it was in the territory of the tribe of Benjamin that Jerusalem itself, the holy city, was located. We were the ones that maintained the temple worship through all those years. Paul says... You can't say that God has rejected his people because God has not rejected me and there's nobody who's more of a Jew than I am. And this is the mystery, Paul says, that is now being revealed. A mystery that was hidden in ages past but has now been made known to us that God is at work to literally save the peoples of the world. Gentiles and Jews alike. And even though now it appears as though many of the Jews have rejected, Paul says God has not rejected them. And he will work in and through even the lives of the Gentiles to bring about the salvation of his ancient people. Let me leave you with just a couple of practical lessons from all of this. I know this is deep theology it's been a bit of a tour de force through Ephesians and through Romans. But let me just leave you with a couple of practical lessons that I think are important. First lesson is this. This teaches us that God always keeps his promises. There are times in history when we think to ourselves, well, God is not really at work. I mean, God made that promise to Abraham, you will be a blessing to all people. But for centuries, the Gentiles were outcasts. But eventually, God did bring them in, didn't he? 
It sometimes looks as though the Jews, by and large, have rejected Jesus Christ, their Savior, their Messiah, the only true Savior and Messiah. And yet what Paul says is that God ultimately did not reject his people. There has always been a faithful remnant. And indeed, God is going to work through the Gentiles to bring about the jealousy of the Jews so that all might be saved. That should be a great encouragement to you and to me because you can get into that siege mentality and think to yourself, oh, we're the only ones left. It's getting worse and worse. And we should be hopeful because God always keeps his promises. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. No matter how things look, God keeps his promises. So we should not be discouraged in our evangelism. We should be about the work. We should remember that the word of the Lord never comes back void. That's a great encouragement to me. Even if I don't happen to be on on a particular Sunday and I'm faltering, as long as it is the word of the Lord, the promise is that God will use it in the lives, in the hearts of his people. The word of the Lord never comes back void. So regardless of how things look out there in the world, even though it may look as though it's getting increasingly dark, you and I can be confident, we can be hopeful that the word of the Lord will prosper. But a word of caution, we should never be presumptuous. We should never assume that we are somehow special. That's one of the things that Paul is going to warn the Gentiles about. He said, the Jews were a natural olive tree. They were God's precious tree. And if you've been to the Holy Land, you know olive trees are everywhere. And they're precious, they, they bear fruit. He says, but some of the limbs have been lobbed off and we've grafted in new limbs. The Gentiles have been grafted into that great olive tree. He said, but if God can graft in new branches, don't you think he can still save those who were originally part of the tree? Don't be presumptuous and think, well, we're something special. God has rejected his people and he's chosen us. No, no, we should never be presumptuous. And finally this, because God has not forsaken his people, because God still cares about Israel, because God still has a plan for Israel and he's working out his purposes through the Gentiles for the salvation of Israel, there is absolutely no place whatsoever in the life of the church for anti-Semitism. There's no place for that. And I hate to say that, but down through the centuries, there has been in the life of the church a great deal of anti-Semitism. It's not just something that existed in Nazi Germany. It exists here in our own nation, in our own community. And the scriptures are very clear, there is no place for that whatsoever. God is working in and through the church, which is made up of Jews and Gentiles, to save all people. And indeed, you and I are here today because he has. It was a mystery hidden, but for us, it's been revealed. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that your ways are not our ways, that your ways are so much higher than our ways. We have a very narrow perspective, Lord. The Jews thought that they were the chosen people, that they were special, that you had no love of the Gentiles, that the Gentiles were uncircumcised, unclean dogs. But you worked in and through the Jewish people to bring about a Jewish savior who would in fact be the savior of the world. And he would bring Gentiles in. We have that old hymn, Gentiles worship you. Epiphany is all about the Gentiles, the, the wise men from afar, Jesus whom the Gentiles worship. But it's not as though you have rejected your people because you have saved the Gentiles. You are now working through us, through the church, 
to live in such a way that we provoke the Jews to jealousy, that they might regain that great inheritance that is theirs by birth, by right, that they might come to know him whom we know, their Savior and the Savior of the world. This is the mystery. Let us rejoice in it, Lord. Let us be confident. Let us be bold. And let us go out and proclaim it to the ends of the earth. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.